Welcome to another episode of the Blurred Political Lines podcast, where we share our political views, discuss current events, and explore different perspectives. Join us in this episode, along with Dr. Plum, as we discuss the 2014 Maidan protests in Ukraine. All right, welcome back to another episode, everyone. Uh, We're joined here today by Dr. Plum. Dr. Plum, it's good to have you on. Happy to be back. Always happy to weigh in on the podcast. (laughs) Well, this is kind of a a special topic today because it's not COVID. Um, So it'll be interesting to to (laughs) talk to you about something different. We've been promising for um, a year and a half that we would do an episode not about COVID, and it's finally here. I'm very excited to talk about something that isn't the pandemic. So Yeah, right. <laughs> and just as the pandemic was lifting, you know, things look like they might get back to normal. Boom. World War Three. So oh. <laughs> so I do want to get your thoughts on that um, starting off today. And then we'll dive a little bit more um, into the Maidan protests um, from 2014. Um, so let's just start off. What are your thoughts about what's going on in the world between Russia and Ukraine and everything that's developed in the last week? Yeah, so let me let me try and conceptualize the last week of foreign affairs, I suppose, into a couple of brief statements. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, like most of us who had kind of been paying attention to the news, kind of, unfortunately, saw it coming a little bit with the way that Russia has been posturing on the border and just Vladimir Putin's, you know, behavior in general. I listened to your guys' last podcast, and I thought it was a really good summary of things that have kind of gone on and some good ideas. But first and foremost, obviously, just a a terrible tragedy for the people of Ukraine. And so, obviously, thoughts are with, you know, the Ukrainian people as they kind of resist Russia from all angles. But really, it's just such such an interesting and horrible situation, the likes of which, you know, we haven't seen a similar thing probably in our lifetimes outside yeah. of, I guess, our own country's invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. So right. it's very, it's very unsettling, I suppose, as somebody so naive on the world stage. Yeah, I was shocked when they actually invaded. I thought that they were just, uh, just, I, I knew that something was going on, but I just didn't expect them to, to go out and invade. And you think to yourself, why are they doing this out of nowhere? It seemed like, you know, obviously they've been building up troops there for a while. We were hearing about it. We were hearing leaders, um, Joe Biden, call them out on things that were going on and what their plans were, but it just didn't seem like it was actually going to come to fruition or, or to, to actually come to be. And then they just, they just started it. And um, so I couldn't help but think, why? Why did this happen all of a sudden? Um, so it was interesting in that last podcast um, for us to look at the history there because there's just so mm-hmm. much there. Um, and, you know, it goes back for decades between these two countries and I think when you look at that context a little bit more, um, it makes sense kind of how we got to this point and why mm-hmm. we're here. It doesn't excuse like what's going on or justify Absolutely. it, um, but it kind of makes sense as to what's been going on because a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like this came out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I guess, I guess just, that's just our ignorance um, being out of Ukrainian politics. Yeah. Not something I paid uh, much attention to, I think, as I was studying, you know, in school. Ukrainian politics didn't come up very often. So I agree, though, as as kind of my interest in this whole history has grown, I've continued to dive deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of, you know, Russian and Soviet geography and politics over the past century. Yeah. And just keeps going. (laughs) 
there's a lot of shit that's gone on between these two countries. Oh, yeah. And we just kind of touched on the last 20 years. I think it's the most relevant right now. But yeah, like you said, you could really go back 100 years and look at some of the massacres that took place between um, Russia and Ukrainian people where millions of people were killed mm-hmm. um, and starved to death. And um, I think that really sets the stage for the tension that you're seeing in that country um, between kind of the two factions, I would say, like the pro-Russian and, and pro-EU yeah, um, groups of the country. Absolutely. It's incredibly complex. Yeah. But um, I was I was interested in this. So I actually watched a Netflix documentary. It's called Winter on Fire. It's on there right now. It's it's about Ukraine's fight for freedom is what it's called. And I thought it was really interesting because we talked about this in the last podcast. And it's about these um, protests in 2013 and 2014 that I think were really the catalyst for what we're seeing nowadays nowadays um with the current conflict so it started i want to go through that history a little bit and just break that down and talk about it um just for like a quick episode today so um let's dive into that so the the protests were the 2013 they're initially called the um euro maidan protests they're also known as the 2014 maidan revolution or the revolution of dignity in ukraine so this started in 2013. There were large-scale protests that erupted in Ukraine when President, President Yanukovych refused to sign a free trade agreement with the EU, which would have in, impacted trade with their biggest partner, Russia. These protests went on from November of 2013 through February of 2014. Um, the November 2013 protests, where they started, they were known as Euromaidan, which occurred in Independence Square in um, Kiev. And on November 24th, um, in, response, in response to a call by opposition leaders, more than 50,000 people gathered in this independent square, and a group of protesters actually tried to storm a government building, and then police attempted to disperse them. And over the next two weeks, there, it, it became more violent. Um, over 400 protesters were injured, and 200 police officers were injured. And the, the violence just continued to escalate this situation. Um, it led to more rioting. And this went back and forth for months. Um, it was pretty interesting in this documentary. They showed protesters building like giant barricades in this independent square. They had fortifications with barbed wire. They were burning tires. They were throwing Molotov cocktails. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because a lot of the videos that I'm seeing online when I'm trying to look up information on Ukraine and Russia... Mm-hmm. We're actually from this 2014 Maidan revolution, um, not from the current Russia invasion. So you can see, um, I think we've seen, if you've seen the videos, there's some um, where they're throwing Molotov cocktails at tanks. Yep. Um, and I, I fell for a lot of these videos at first, but there's um, so many of them out there right now that I think are kind of misinformation about what's going on right now. Yep. You, I don't believe almost anything that I'm reading on Twitter. It's about so hard. This conflict. Yeah, I mean Twitter's Twitter's a great way to stay like up to date, up to date, you know, like minute by minute. But you yeah, know, just take that with the an enormous grain of salt. Yeah. Well, there's just been so many stories that aren't true, and I feel like so much of it has been to influence opinion on the conflict and to make yep. it look like the Ukrainians are doing um, really well. When I'm not sure how true that is, even if. Russia isn't doing as well as they maybe anticipated at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because a lot of these videos that I, I was looking at, um, I kept looking and people were like, this is from 2014. This is from 2014. Yep. Um, so this 
this protest and what ended up being this revolution was actually extremely violent. Um, and we kind of talked about it on the last episode too. And this, this kind of confirmed it for me that the U S was involved in these protests. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually had in December of 2013, while these protests were going on, Republican Senator John McCain and a democratic Senator Chris Murphy actually visited the opposition leaders um, who were helping to put on these protests in Ukraine. So this kept going on after the new year. Um, it was growing. They had these giant barricades and the barricades to me reminded me of the French revolution, like a bunch of people taking to the streets um, and just, just creating like barricades of tires and um, cars and anything else they could find. And then they put like more, um, violent things on there too, like barbed wire, like I was saying, but they were pretty dug in in these barricades. Yeah. Um, so this went on and the, the number grew, it would, it would, it would grow and go back down. But, um, I've seen figures from anywhere from 50,000 people to 200,000 people were taking place, um, taking part of these protests. Yeah. Um, so in January then as a response to that and kind of the ongoing, um, the, the ongoing protest and occupation of this independent square, the parliament in Ukraine actually passed laws to help to try to repress protests. So mm-hmm. um, in response to that, then the protesters took over some of the regional government buildings in a number of Western Ukrainian cities. And um, that was on January 23rd. On February 4th, there was a recorded phone call. Um, again, this is just kind of, showing the the outside influence in this protest as well. Um, There was an outside phone call that was leaked that had um, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Joffrey Pyatt. And they were heard discussing their wishes for a Ukrainian um, transition to an interim government. Um, And specifically, they were discussing the roles they wish um, in which they hope to see prominent opposition leaders in. Mm -hmm. So this was really a month before... Um, that interim government was set up and you can see them kind of planning this as as these protests continued. So I thought that that was um, pretty illuminating as to maybe what helped to fuel these tensions and continues to, to cause some tension there today. Mm -hmm. Um, So these protests continued into February and up until a day, they're getting more violent. And then there was a day, and there seems to be some confusion. There's some confusion in the documentary. There's some confusion in things that I looked at online. Um, it seemed that someone was shooting, and the police were blaming the protesters, and the protesters were blaming the police, but the police were coming out to kind of engage the protesters again, and then they backed off, and they retreated. And this was probably the, the most shocking part of the documentary is that these people started just opening fire on these protesters. Mm-hmm. Um, they had people with sniper rifles just gunning some of these protesters down. Um, it was really shocking to see. I think this is really when, when things took a turn for the worst. So in all, 130 people were killed, including 18 police officers um, at this point. And then finally, on February 21st, Yanukovych agreed to early elections in December of 2014. So they announced this at the protests and this guy got up on the stage as the opposition leaders were. Yeah. So the opposition leaders were like, Hey, 
we're going to do new elections later this year. And the crowd was like booing and stuff. And this guy dressed in like camouflage got up on the stage and he said, no, either Yanukovych uh, resigns by 10 a.m. tomorrow or we're going to go on the offensive. Oh, um, Lord. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> things were getting really ugly. Um, but luckily, I think um, that it didn't make matters worse. Uh, Yanukovych actually fled Russia the next day um, and the protesters took over Kiev. Uh, and then the Ukrainian parliament voted 328 to, to zero to remove him as president. Um, so Yanukovych claimed that the vote was illegal. It was a coerced mm-hmm. vote. Um, and he asked Russia, Russia for assistance. And this um, also went along with pro-Russian protests in the south and east of Ukraine, which led to further military intervention in the separatist regions. And, of course, the annexation of Crimea which is um, what we talked about a little bit on the last episode. So -hmm. finally they had this new government installed and then the new government signed this free trade agreement with the EU. And that again, affected the relationship that they had already had with Russia. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit more of a breakdown of the events that led up to this. But I think it's interesting looking at this, you have a pro Russian president and you clearly have Western people trying to influence the politics in that country um, and what he had claimed to be a, a coup. Um, we were definitely helping to facilitate that. It seems like, and that really set the stage for everything that we're seeing play out right now mm-hmm. um, in the current conflict. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. That. It's a very interesting, you know, like Obviously, refreshing back on this, it's surprising that I don't remember nearly any of this from nine years ago. Only I know. the headline parts of it. It but... was just like, Russia's doing this because they're crazy. They're annexing Crimea out of nowhere, yeah. right? There was no context to it. Yeah. And it just, I mean, the deeper you look into it and the more history you kind of gather, you see, unfortunately, Ukraine and the Eastern European countries that formerly were the USSR, kind of as this playing ground for influence between the global west and russia you know what i mean like so much of this can be taken from so many angles just in the backdrop of whose influence is going to win here my understanding of kind of the public outcry to all of this was that even further back than this ukraine had been posturing that it was trying to join nato and trying to become a member of the eu by being friendly with those agreements with a previous leader Mm -hmm. and then everything was going smooth sailing along the way that everybody had kind of wanted it to with the EU trade agreement kind of pending and the NATO, not membership, but the step right below it. I think they were like an affiliated nation of NATO. And then all of a sudden this pro Russian leader is just like, Nope, we're not doing that anymore as kind of a, you know, a bid to Russia. Yeah. And so that is, I think a lot of what kind of sparked all of this is this obvious, you know, allowing of influence in russia which apparently the people of ukraine didn't really vibe with too much it's just so complicated because we think about ukraine as kind of a unit like a uniform country when clearly there are different factions of people there right and so it just it's very 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 you know convoluted right well i think it's interesting because these elections in ukraine um Mm -hmm. from what i looked at from 2004 um until 2014 um they were very close and it was, yes. it was always between someone who was pro Russia or someone who was um, more pro EU yep. um, or Western. And so 
it seems like one of the elections, the, the person who favored the EU won, and the next one, the guy who, re- who favored Russia won, which isn't, I think, different than what we see in our own country. You know, things are pretty close, and it swings back and forth. Yeah. Right? Um, there's not, like, an overwhelming majority going one way or the other. Definitely. So it's interesting to me that we, um, who we constantly posture as, like, the pro-democracy um, part of the world, you know, and we're we're idealistic and we're virtuous and we want democracy in, in Ukraine. Um, and it's, I'm sure that's probably what we were talking about when this happened, too, and we were supporting these protesters. Mm-hmm. But it's like the most undemocratic thing <laughs> possible oh, yeah. to try to overthrow a government um, through violent protests. Um, and even if they didn't start out as very violent, you know, they obviously were escalating towards violence. Um, they were occupying government buildings. And I couldn't help but watch this documentary and think, that's what an actual insurrection looks like, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it was just, it, it was, it was everything that you would expect. Um, so it was interesting because in the end, there was obviously a large percentage of the Ukrainian people who had backed this president and probably agreed with his views. Um, and they were kind of, um, thrown out undemocratically. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it is very complicated and, you know, I'm all in favor of peaceful protesting. I'm all in favor of making your voice heard and rallying the people and all of that. I think it's clear, especially when you look at a place like Ukraine or a situation like this, that when the stakes get high enough, you know, there's no, and there's no ceiling to the escalation, you know, that people will go to, to, to fight for their country or their beliefs or who knows, you know? So it is a very interesting case study and, you know, in thinking about, insurrections quote-unquote protests and revolutions even in context right um it just makes me think that with some of the things we've seen over the last two years right i want to compare this to some of the other protests that we've seen yeah um over the last two years we had the 2020 um blm protests then we had the january 6th insurrection and then most recently we even had the um canadian truckers protest oh yeah and I don't, I think depending on whether we think that they're, we don't treat all protests the same, whether we think that they're valuable or not changes so much on how we, we view them. So um, it's interesting because a lot of these protests, one side has been very against them and then one side was very pro them. Mm -hmm. um, And it feels like people are flip-flopping back and forth as to what they think um, about peaceful protesting. So um I, I think it's interesting when you look at something like this, it, it seems to be contextualized as kind of this, this freedom protest or freedom revolution in Ukraine. Yeah. But I could see very easily how on the other side of it, the Russian people saw it as a coup. Yeah. And you see the same thing in all of these other examples. Like, like we'll talk about the Canadian truckers. That's the most recent one. Yeah. Um, you know, there's people downtown. They're, they're doing the same thing that Ukraine did. Um, these people in Ukraine, they took over an area of downtown, they weren't leaving, they were unhappy about something, and the government enacted emergency orders to freeze their bank accounts and mm-hmm. their assets and, and all of these things. And then we see something um, different like the uh, BLM protests in 2020, where people were kind of facilitating those to continue on. And even some of those areas like the 
the autonomous zones that were developing. People yeah. allowed this to go on. So it's just, it's interesting to me to see how we treat these differently. And um, I can't help but think maybe there's, there's almost no good way to deal with a situation like that. No, there's, there's almost no good. When you get enough people angry enough that there's thousands of people in the streets, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's, there's almost no, no easy path out of that. You know what I mean? And so it just is, it is a really interesting point that you bring up that, you know, the the vantage point that you see this from and kind of where you come from on your own, either national or political beliefs really does frame the entire movement. You know what right. I mean? It mm-hmm. frames the entire narrative. And like, right. you know, like people generally on the left see the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Lives Matter protests as generally positive, right? you know, but inevitably there was a lot of chaos and damage and things like that. Whether you think that that was worth it is I think where the question kind of comes in when you're looking at something much more granular than that. Well, I think even in the framing of it too, right? Yeah. Um, Like January 6th, um, I don't want to get into the specifics, but it was much less violent. Yes. And there was a protester that was killed that day. And no one really seems to care about that, um, that there was an unarmed person killed that day it kind of seems like, okay, it was justified because it was, they were breaking into a government building. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, if some of these protests get out of hand and someone gets shot, then we villainize the police. So it's just an interesting, um, I don't know, it's an interesting way to think about it because I, I just see people flip on, it, it's almost like unprincipled um, opinions on it, you know? Yeah. One day the police are bad, one day the police are good. I, either side, you know? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really easy to let's see how do I want to say this to like everybody has their own ideas in a vacuum, you know, like everybody Mm -hmm. knows kind of where they stand, let's say politically or yeah, I'm in support of that. or I'm not in support of that. It's much harder to be consistent with those beliefs when you're not in a vacuum and all of a sudden you have a very gray both sides aren't all that awesome situation. Yeah, like very rarely is any is any side in a conflict or protest or you know everything like that 100 percent right yeah and so when your ideas are taken out of the vacuum all of a sudden it's a little bit harder i think to to make that belief as clean and principled as one might expect it to be yeah so i guess looking back at this and thinking about the context of what we're seeing today do you feel like that we're as as the united states or western countries are we as to blame for this, maybe not as to blame, but um, at least some part to blame for what's going on right now um, as some of the other actors? That's a good question. So I think, I think inevitably this, this comes down to just paraphrase this, but I don't think, I don't think anybody really knows what Putin is thinking or after he's kind of, you know, I think the term of an irrational world actor is kind of a good <laughs> good term for him because I no one really knows what's happening or where he's going to go. But, you know, you you see the geopolitics of the world talking about, let's say, former USSR versus the global West with the USA and Russia being the key players there. You know, almost every conflict in the past 50 or 50 years has been between the two of them in some way, whether it's a proxy war, whether it's a war for influence, whether it's trying to expand our sphere into the Pacific first. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I don't want to say the U S is as to blame as Russia is for this, 
but you know, certainly us and NATO encroaching on Russia's borders can't feel very nice. To see Russia's sphere of influence shrink can't feel very good. And so you can see why this might be a response that Putin would have. But I don't, I, I don't want to put, you know, obviously we're not to blame for the destruction of Ukraine as we know it. But it definitely, definitely had some influence in the way that Putin was seeing the world shape out before him. Yeah. And I can't help but thinking, too, um, um, thinking with all of this, just our perception of Vladimir Putin and Russia and how much that's shaped by just like the media that we consume and yep. like our perspective. And I, I just can't help but think, I wonder what they think about what's gone on in the last 20 years. And I wonder what they think about the United States. And it would be interesting yep. to, to spend some time in their shoes and like talking to them and really get their perspective. And are, is Putin really this irrational actor um, or are we only seeing part of the picture? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you get the idea from like the, you know, the mainstream media that Russia is this like, like you know government state where everybody's brainwashed by all the propaganda and nobody yeah. has any free internet <laughs> so they all love putin yeah and like that clearly is not the whole truth you know right. what i mean so it would be really interesting obviously to to spend some time in there and see kind of what people's actual attitudes were because yeah. yeah we always make it out as this monolithic you know russia mother russia deal right <laughs> clearly clearly not that simple well that's our propaganda oh yeah know? and even when we talk about these other protests that's why i think so much of it is is our propaganda shaping our opinions oh, absolutely. Um, and our view of things so i don't know yeah it's always helpful to just remember that the world is actually very gray you know? yeah yeah like there are two sides at least to every story and so you just got to remember what lens you're looking through. For sure. Um, all right. Any other thoughts on um, the Maidan protests or what's going on currently in Russia or and, and the Russian-Ukrainian conflict? Uh, no, no concrete thoughts. <laughs> Obviously, just very interested to see how this goes and wishing, wishing very good thoughts on, you know, a lot of people in Ukraine who didn't ask for any of this. So. Yeah. I do have one other thought today and I can't help but think with all of this Russia, Ukraine stuff going on, Joe Rogan really lucked out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were, they were putting the flames right under Spotify's feet um, oh, for yeah. them to, to get rid of him. And I haven't heard a thing about Joe Rogan the last week. Yeah, he was being walked off the cliff slowly. <laughs> yeah, right. And he really dodged that bullet. Oh, yeah. So. He slipped right under the radar. Good for him. No one gives a shit about Joe Rogan's controversial podcast now. But nope, he's actually done a really good job with um, balancing them. He said he was going to. And I've yeah. really liked some of the episodes he's had where he talks to one person and talks to another one. Um, sounds like a really good idea for a podcast, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, get people with differing ideas together and just let them hash it out. Yeah, yeah. Huh. <laughs> Well, that's everything we have for this episode. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.